I want to do a shout out to one of our amazing partners, Banzoogle. Now, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website for artists. Now, I have personally have used web builders for years. In fact, the 8020 Records website is maintained by yours truly. But honestly, these days, as someone who represents artists, I just want something straightforward that still looks amazing and works with everything that we use, such as Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Bands of Town, Printful, and so forth. And Banzoogle checks off all of these. Also, for those of you who have no idea how to build websites, don't worry, they make it super easy there too. You do not need to know a single line of code. In fact, after you sign up, they go step-by-step step through each part of the process to get you up and running. Plus, their pricing is practically the same as if you paid for a web host. So really, it's a no-brainer. Lastly, and most importantly, what I love about Banzoogle is the people. Every single person I've spoken to has been nothing but kind and extremely responsive and helpful. They truly care about the artists that use their platform. And honestly, don't just take my word for it. Go listen to my interview with Stacy Bedford, the CEO of the company. Banzoogle is also offering to all our listeners 15% off the first year of any subscription. Just enter the promo code 8020show or 8020show, like the numbers, on banzoogle.com. I'll also put it in the description. Built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle. You're listening to The 8020 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The 8020 Show. I am your wonderful host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Matt Jenko, one of the main curators for the playlist platform Music2. In this interview, we discuss about finding your direction and how he started in psychology and biomedical in college, eventually leading into creating music. And of course, we did a deep dive into playlisting, everything from how to submit to playlisters, how to become a playlister yourself, and honestly, the entire ecosystem of playlisting. It was such an amazing interview, and I hope you enjoy it. It is my absolute pleasure to give you Matt Jenko. Hey, Matt, how's it going? I'm very well. I feel like I've not spoke to you in so long. I know, right? <laughs> so uh, for everyone listening, we just had like at least an hour conversation before this. Uh, we actually had this interview and that's usually how it happens. We normally go at least like two to three hours just talking about everything, business related, life, philosophy. We, we pretty, you know, video games, we pretty much run like a whole bunch of topics. Including dreams as well. This and dreams as well. The new one that we added this time for sure. Yep. Dreams as well at this point. Yeah. I always like to talk about how I met the guests that, I, that we have on the 8020 show. And for us, actually, it was through uh, Edgy Musication, of all things. And I was a moderator for one of the uh, panels. In fact, we do have it as one of the episodes on the 8020 show. It's all about playlisting. So you, I'm sure you already know a little bit about Matt from that episode. But uh, yeah, we just kind of hit it off afterwards. We kind of chatted back and forth and found out we just had a lot of things in common. Yeah, especially I think it was uh, Final Fantasy Seven was the the um, well I think no because we had a conversation didn't we for and then it was at the end of that conversation when we just kind of gravitated towards video games and it's like oh no there's someone else here who likes Final Fantasy Seven I have found a kindred <laughs> spirit here. <laughs> That is true. I forgot how even we even got onto that subject, but I think at that point we we're like, okay, cool. And also the thing too is, I think we were just having a follow up, just wanted to get to know each other. And 
easily an hour or two went by and we're both like, how did that even happen? And I think that's also what we knew too, that we just become good friends because, you know, you know, like you're going to get along with somebody if just like an hour of conversation goes by and like, you didn't even realize it. Well, we get to the point now where like, I'll reach out to Michael, Michael reach out to me and he'll say like, I've given us a two hour slot because I know that we're going to need the whole two hours. Like one hour rarely cuts it. And as you know, (laughs) it's kind of how it is right now as well. So, and you know, that's the way, the way I like it to be honest. Me too. I, I like having long conversations with people. You know, I know some people like to have, you know, quick, short, get to the point meetings and so forth. But there's a lot of nuance that comes down to having, you know, to talking to people in person um, or in this case over Zoom. And I think that's also important, too, because honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that we talked about all kinds of different topics, we probably wouldn't have gotten to the point of talking about Final Fantasy VII and finding something else that we had in common. And we started geeking out on that stuff. And that's how we you know, started bonding greater because of those reasons. And I think those things get missed if you don't give the time to really get the chance to know somebody. It's hard to have a friendship with someone when it feels very much like the conversation is a series of points that need to be addressed and then see you later. And when there's a little bit of freedom to kind of just see what else makes this person tick. Uh, I'm a big fan of that as well. I, I would happily have two hour calls with everybody if I could, but you know, it's just not always, it's not always practical, but I think in the, in the case of me and Mike, we, we make that time because we've found it to be so worthwhile. And we tend to work with, with the people that we consider our friends, right? Because it has that established trust that comes along with a friendship. In fact, uh, Emily White, who was uh, one of our prior guests, who's the founder of the iVota Festival, she actually spoke to my class at Arizona State. And one of the things that she mentioned was the fact we were talking about representation for artists and who they select to to represent. And she mentioned that a lot of times it's because of you know artists they've met at conferences and hung out with them at these networking events or whatever the case was. And they already bonded and had this type of relationship that sometimes would come to fruition quickly or sometimes would take five, six years before something happens. But they've already have built that friendship and trust with each other because they would see each other at these festivals or conferences or whatever the case is. And for me too, that's exactly how it works. Most of the artists that we have is because we we've known them before in some form or fashion. Yeah. We spoke about this quite a few times, haven't we, about the idea of how do you, um, you know, how do you particularly sign an artist? And it's because someone's already on your radar. Um, It's because they've already, caught your attention in terms of somebody who is seeming like they're trustworthy or you know they're hardworking or just something about that person or entity that gives you the sense of hey we were probably ethically in alignment um they value the same things that I value and you know the best way to to test that if you want to test it is through friendship uh you know can you rely on this person do you haven't heard from this person in a few months. Do you follow up? Do they follow up with you? Do they genuinely like care about maintaining this friendship or were they just kind of looking for some kind of thing that either you couldn't give them or they got out of you already? And and I feel like the music industry in particular is kind of rife with a lot of that behavior. So when you find someone who feels like a genuine friend, um, it's it's probably something to treasure more because it's so hard to find, you know? I 100% agree. So I do want to uh, pivot for a second and 
talk about, I want to talk about you now. Let's talk about your story. <laughs> so uh, I w- we always want to know is uh, how did you discover that you had a passion for music? Do you remember, was there a specific moment in time that you realized that you had a love for music? It's kind of one of those really hard things to uh, pinpoint where it specifically began. I mean, if you want to go back to like, uh, there was a song in the 90s called Shake Your Head. Um, okay. And I was I was a baby in the 90s and my mum told me that I used to just sort of shake my head to this song and that was kind of like the first most poignant musical memory that I've got because it's just some baby shaking his head and having a connection with music and um, you know uh, I suppose I kind of picked up playing music or instrumentation um, what a cool way of putting it Ooh, instrumentation but um, that was sort of like in high school, I guess. Um, when you find, and you know, in the UK, high school starts when you're 11, and it's the the wildest time of your life because you're a teenager trying to figure out all this stuff, and uh, you find clicks, and it was kind of like, yeah, we call them moshers, kind of like the punks, goths, sort of, kind of that kind of crowd, um, and I really liked some 41. I think Sum 41 stand out as the first band that made me want to pick up a guitar. Um, And it kind of progressed from there. Like I just tried out different things. Uh, My dad brought a drum kit home and my mom was like, why have you done this? Um, So picking up some drums and then I joined my first band at 14, I think. uh, We were called Death of a Nation. What were you playing? I I ended up on the drums. That's how I uh, kind of stuck for a while. Um, and that was um, that was an experience. We ended up supporting some fairly big names in our very, very young careers. Um, Vice Squad stands out as one of the bands that we supported at one point. Um, and um, yeah, it was that was really kind of interesting as an experience when you're kind of in your early teens trying to figure out a bunch of other stuff and then also being in a, in a band where everyone else is trying to figure out their own stuff as well. And uh, that that ended and then I moved to another band and so I've, I've done quite a few things along the way but I think it was pretty much punk music where it was rooted which is odd given where I am today I know right so have you have you ever thought about that becoming a career choice for yourself as being a musician or was this more like a like a passion where you just you just love to play like was there any point where you thought like this could be a potential career path for myself it was always the dream, okay. but it was always a pipe dream. And that was one of the kind of the um, the accepted lessons of the world that, look, don't think you're going to be a musician. Nobody makes it. Um, have a realistic uh, outlook of your prospects in this world. Don't shoot for the stars and, and that sort of thing. And I don't know if that's kind of like a cultural thing um, or more kind of relevant to my particular situation when I was growing up and stuff but um the idea that you could make a career as a musician especially back then because this is before we had things like Facebook Facebook what a boomer mm. I am right <laughs> TikTok is what the kids are using these days I think right That's TikTok um but yeah this was before you know like the Arctic Monkeys kind of blew up on MySpace and that sort of thing so the idea, the idea was you got signed to a major label and that was supposed to be like this struck by lightning, one in a million chance and 
kind of have have realistic expectations was the was the main order of the day. So I found it very interesting that you when when you went to college that you didn't go to college for business or for music or anything along those lines. You went to college for psychology. Yeah. <laughs> was there a, a reason why that you decided to go to psychology specifically? Um, honestly, that's the problem of telling an 18 year old, Hey, you got to decide your life at the age of 18. Um, I very nearly didn't go actually. I kind of forgot about this. So like, again, the way the English education system works is you do high school until you're 15, 16, and then you do, um, what we call college, which is your A-levels and you do that between 16 and 18, and then you go to university at 18. So when I was doing my A-levels at the age of 16, 17, I kind of got really disenfranchised by the whole thing. And I was telling my tutors, I don't want to go to uni. And I was kind of acting out and they were like, just come on, you can do this, please do this. And then I don't know, I must've had some kind of pivotal thing where I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue it. Um, psychology, I guess it just felt like something that would be interesting. And it was, it really, really was. I got really into it eventually. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a product of not really knowing where to go or what to do. So you just follow a path that's in front of you. And it, in the end, because again, I think like what you can see from the, the different trajectories that I've been on is that I've been all over the place, really, in terms of a career. Um, and it's sort of like, if you look at it, the pieces don't necessarily line up, but I think they've created this perfect storm to get me where I am now. Um, but you could never have predicted it, I don't think. <laughs> Normally you can't. And it's so funny that you mentioned that you were kind of kicking and screaming, getting into to a university. And not only did you get a bachelor's in psychology, but then also you actually went on to get a master's in biology and biomedical. Yeah, I, it's a symptom of the exact same problem of kind of pivoting whilst on the, uh, the undergraduate degree. Uh, in my third year, I just kind of fell in love with neuroscience and biology and and that kind of thing and um there was like an interstitial year in between graduating with the bachelor's and then starting the master's degree where i had like a bit of an existential crisis in terms of what do i want to do the idea of doing a psychology master's degree um felt didn't feel right it wasn't resonating with me i i gravitated towards cancer research and found that incredibly difficult to make the leap across um kind of coming up against similar adversaries from the past in different forms of people basically saying, you can't do that. And that's always been kind of a big motivation in a lot of these times. The minute someone says you can't do something, I'm like, oh, now I've really got to do it. And I'm going to show you that I can do it. Um, might not be the healthiest driver, but it's a powerful driver for sure. And I remember really clearly being sat in this room um, I'd applied for a master's degree in cancer biology at the University of Birmingham. And the guy didn't know that I had a girlfriend at the time who lived in Birmingham. So I was already there for all he knew. He made me drive down 60 miles to come and speak to him in person for him to literally just sit there and say, uh, yeah, you can't do this. And I was like, why have you brought me here, bro? Like this, this seems really cruel, you know? Wow. Um, so it was that kind of, and then I had this real, like 
decision to make because uh, University of Birmingham had accepted me onto a psychology master's degree and University of Liverpool had accepted me onto a biology master's degree. And I had to kind of pick which route I'm going to go down. And I ended up picking going down the biology route and doing the master's degree and the whole time wrestling with that insecurity of hearing those voices that you can't do this, you're a fraud, you're an imposter, you're not capable of doing this, like you don't have the skills. And, and there was definitely a practical element to saying, hey, there's a lot of lab work involved in this and real kind of technical ability in terms of pipetting stuff and using a centrifuge and all things that I had no experience of. Um, but it's the idea of, well, if someone's willing to learn, then teach them. Um, so I was, you know, I was able to get through it uh, despite constant reservations and insecurities and making my, myself quite sick along the way, you know, kind of putting a huge amount. I told myself, if I don't get a distinction, I might as well have failed, which was just a stupid pressure to put on myself. I should have just been enjoying the experience of learning a new thing and getting immersed into a world that is really exciting and just didn't enjoy the whole thing because of the fact that I was like, no, it's got to be this or it's not that. And then on the day that I did get a distinction, it was like a five minute kind of, wow, I did it. Now what? <laughs> That's interesting that you mentioned that because I know that's something that we were talking about earlier, right? Is that, that, that expectation on yourself about, you know, achieving these specific goals and, and you know, life usually doesn't work that way. Usually you are going to be given, you're going to be thrown curveballs and things are going to change. And, you know, the path is never a straight line. It's usually like you go up and then you, you make a left turn and then you kind of go around a little bit. You loop back around again. You may even go, you know, back to where you started from and then you go a different direction and go around and so forth. But eventually you'll land where you're supposed to go. And the point is that even though it's not a straight line, if you didn't take the journey that you did, you wouldn't have that, that experience that you do now where ultimately that path has led you. It's about the fact that you took all these turns and went all these different directions and so forth and learned along the way of what you like, what you don't like, what um, experiences that you have in completely different areas and how it can apply now to this area. That's what makes you, you, and that's what makes things, you know, makes you unique as a person. hundred percent. There's been so many times where I've been able to call on some completely obscure experience or piece of knowledge that I've got from a totally unrelated field um, that's kind of got me out of a bind or helped me to see a situation in a different way. Um, again, it kind of calls back to that idea of saying to an 18 year old, pick your future now. And it's, it, that's an incredible pressure to put on a young developing mind because if you're anything like me when I was 18, you don't have a clue what was going on. No, I don't think you any of us did. I mean, no. unless unless you knew for a fact that you want to be like a doctor or a lawyer or something along those lines at an early age, which the majority of us don't. The majority of us, and I'm sure a lot of you listening felt the same way. It's like when you were, you know, 18 years old, you probably don't know what you wanted to ultimately do. You may have an idea, but you're really not sure yet. I know that was the case for myself. I knew at that point in time that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I had no idea what that actually meant. You are no bringing idea. a lot of your kind of inexperiences and naiveties to that, to that equation at the age of 18. And, um, and you just don't have a, a, a real broad sense of the possibilities that are out there. Like the nuance of, of what is actually available to you 
and I'm obviously cognizant that not everyone has the same opportunities either. And it's not, it's not always as easy as saying, Hey, that's what I want to be. Give me all the facts. And it's, sometimes that's just not an option. Um, you, you can be excluded from certain things for certain reasons. And um, the, the idea though, that there is supposed to be a path that you walk and you just walk in a straight line until marriage and kids or, or whatever is the predefined cultural norm for you in terms of what's expected of you. Um, that That's just not how life really works. And to ex and I guess, you know, there are definitely people out there who found, um, you know, found a path that fits them early on and they, you know, they stay in the same industry and in the same career for the, for the majority of their working life because for whatever reason it suits them. But the expectation that you're supposed to have it all figured out, I guess, is, is the one that I found personally to be, I cannot predict at any point what I was going to do next. And that sometimes makes it sound like everything's been aimless. There's always been an aim to what I've done, but it was just that realization at some point that's like, I don't have to um, commit to one particular uh, direction at this point. Like the, the, the idea of life is kind of, um, you know, a series of opportunities laid out in front of you and, and being able to pick the one that feels like it's the most appropriate for where you're at in your life. Um, that's been my personal experience of it. And there have been times when it's always had that voice in my head saying, you're making the wrong decision or you shouldn't be doing this or you're breaking the rules in some kind of way by, by pursuing, pursuing this particular direction. Are you kidding yourself? It's been a big one. And you know, it's, <laughs> how, how do you, 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 you can never really predict. I think, at least in my experience, I've never really been able to predict what's going to come of a particular test or experiment, you know, to use scientific language, but always having that kind of, well, let's give it a go. Let's see what happens. Now, have you discovered that the education that you received, those degrees, has that actually helped you at all with what you're currently doing now? In Only in the broadest possible sense. We were talking before um, before we started recording about the idea of soft skills, and um, I mean, I think that's one of the big value um, adds for, for for going and, and, and studying an academic course. It's that maybe the specific information, you know, they all like, no, mitochondria is a powerhouse of the cell, but I don't know how to do my taxes, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, the, um, the specific knowledge that you pick up might not always be, I mean, psychology kind of always has an undercurrent. Um, one of my clients at the minute is an organizational psychologist, so it helps to be able to speak the same language as her in terms of, you know, terms and academic ideas and stuff. Um, but it's, it's really the soft skills that you pick up, the ability to um, critically analyze a piece of writing or think through a problem that might not have an obvious solution um collaborate with people be be a good teammate um have integrity stick up for yourself be able to advocate for yourself in a situation without dominating people um or feeling like you need to dominate people these are all things that i learned through going through that academic journey that probably i would have learned if i'd have studied pretty much any course really but um for sure, there's certain aspects of the scientific method that I use in my everyday life. But um, yeah, I, I, 
I don't think that it's necessarily I'm applying it all right now, but I also don't know in the future when, like I say, you pull on some obscure piece of experience, piece of information or an experience and you go, oh, I can use that in this particular situation. Who knew? So I want to talk about playlisting uh, because you became a playlist curator. So was that always a, a passion? Because obviously you, you, you love to perform and you're a musician, but your playlisting is a definitely a very different type of skill set in, in especially curating a really well put together playlist. So can you talk more about how that came about and how you found a passion for that? So there's a, there's a kind of a gap of the, of my life that um, we've not really touched on. And I, I don't really want to dive into it too, not because it's traumatic, because it's kind of boring really. Um, you know, I had a bit of an interstitial period after finishing uni where I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. Um, and then 2017, I kind of made a few radical life changes. Um, I went through a pretty serious breakup, which had a big effect on me. Um, told me I needed to make a lot of changes from an interpersonal perspective and just from like grow up kind of perspective. Like I was very instrumental in causing that breakup. So take some ownership and, and learn and grow and develop as a human being. Um, I was in a couple of bands at the time. They all fell apart and it just felt like a real kind of rebirth. I, and I, I know it sounds kind of a bit over the top, but I do talk about that as a real rebirth. It feels like a completely different person went through those initial experiences. It was very transformative um, and I learned a lot. And I, I, I started to finally feel like comfortable in my own skin, I guess. Um, comfortable being vulnerable, like, you know, saying something like that right now. If they'd have asked me to say something like that a few years ago, I'd be like, oh, no. Don't, don't reveal the, you know, the insecurities and vulnerabilities of being a human. Um, but I, I kind of uh, went on a solo venture in terms of music. Um, and one of the first things, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will relate to this, but you kind of say, how am I going to make it in the music industry? And you do a little bit of Googling and playlisting inevitably comes up as one of the best ways to start to reach an audience. Because that's really the question. How do I... How do I not have it so that my SoundCloud link only gets listened to by my grandma, you know? And I'm sure my grandma would love my music, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's you need a bigger audience than just grandma, right? Um, so yeah, you end up on the playlist route, and then there's obviously a lot of misinformation out there. And I'm not going to call anybody out, but there are definitely places where if you follow that advice, you're going down a dark road. Um, but along the way, Music Two is just one of the um, one of the playlisting companies that I stumbled upon, um, and they stood out to me as being very unique. It's so weird referring to Music Two as they, by the way, you know. But at the time, it was you know Music Two is like a huge part of you know who I am today. So to refer to it in a but yeah, anyway, um, and the curator who I reached out to, Jesse, um, had a playlist called Music Two Flip Bacon and Sizzle Pancakes. No, it's the other way around. Use it to sizzle bacon and flip pancakes. That's cool. I like that. And I remember being so intrigued by what that might mean. Um, I did the usual pitch. Hey, I've got a song, one of you know, all the kind of stuff. And he was like, oh, it's not really for me, but why don't you come and be a curator yourself? And it was the first kind of time where it felt like, um, one of a better word, a gatekeeper was opening a gate and saying, hey, do you want to come and have your own gate? Maybe like, in like you know the most perverse way if you can't beat them join them because i do feel like there is an adversarial kind of thing between artists and curators i've spoke about this a few times but sometimes it does feel like 
um, there is that sense of tension between like curators are preventing artists from, you know, re realizing their dreams. And at the same time, curators are frustrated with artists. And there's a lot of that that I see that um, I feel like it's probably unnecessary. And we just need a bit of a better dialogue around it. Um, but yeah, it was it was really that it was it was very much a serendipitous sort of thing. There was no real major intention to say, hey, I'm going to be a curator. I didn't wake up one day and say that's going to happen. It was the, it was very much the idea of sometimes you don't know an opportunity exists until someone points it out to you and says, what do you think of this? And you go, I can't even follow that. Was there something you mentioned before that there was something unique about music too that really drew your attention? Do you remember what that was? So Flip Bacon sizzle sizzle the, the bacon one <laughs> yeah sizzle, so sizzle bacon and flip pancakes that's the one um that wasn't the only one with a with a name because you know you see playlists and it's like you know ultimate workout essentials or whatever and you go and i went onto the music and this is 2017 so five years ago and the music the website is very different back then but you've got playlists called like music to dali and jay-z lovers and music to satisfy your inner jellyfish and I'm going, these things are not immediately understandable in terms of what to expect. All, I caught my attention straight away because it was the idea of thinking outside the box. It was the idea of creative thinking, imagination, that this isn't um, about meeting the needs of some algorithm or some trend or some you know search query or something like that. This is all about human creativity and that freedom to say, I don't really care whether people find this and understand this because, at, you know, how many tracks do you see on Spotify that are esoterically named and, and this, you know, strange sort of journey into the, to the psychology of the person who made it? That was the first time I've seen that kind of creativity being applied on the other side of the fence, for want of a better word. So that's what made me want to apply and... And I just remember in the interview with Andrew, who has since become like my closest friend in the whole world, Andrew will be listening and he is my best friend. Um, so at the time, you know, I just remember talking to him and thinking, hey, this guy's, he's onto something here. Um, there's a really good idea here. It feels different. My voice broke there. It must be the emotion, you know. Um, it feels different. It feels unique. It feels fresh. Um, if I'm going to get involved in this world, this feels like the right place to do that because I don't feel like I'm going to be stifled creatively or, you know, battered around the head with KPIs and stuff in terms of we've got to get more of the chill hop playlist. And it's like, no, nah, none of that. And and that that was true. That's that's how Music 2 has evolved and developed that we care far more about supporting creators um fostering connections between people and creating those kinds of bridges between whole cultures really and that's something that i think i saw the seed of i don't think i could have articulated it back in 2017 but i've now watched it grow into a fairly small tree still let's you know but it is growing and it is exciting to be part of it so being now a part of Music 2 and essentially really haven't curated a playlist before, can you talk a little bit more about the thought process that you went through into 
honing your skills as a curator? So it was the kind of the way you got onboarded back in 2017 was the idea of this is an interesting history lesson for me to try and remember because things have changed so much. Um, but so the playlist I came up with was music to save the world too. And it was the, the two part at the end, which really kind of differentiated it from this wasn't like inspirational music in the sense of like, um, you know, big cinematic, whatever this, the idea was it was music to save the world too, in the sense of you are, your everyday life, you know, the everyday challenges of going to commute or your boss is giving you trouble or trouble at home or, or whatever it might be. And this was supposed to galvanize you. I think the, what was the galvanize you when the chips are down and, you know, kind of, perk, perk, you know, accompany you on, on the way to victory, that kind of thing. Um, so what I learned at that point was that really I could put whatever I wanted on that playlist what I had to do was justify that particular track being on that playlist in terms of meeting that need that I had, you know, that's meeting that expectation that I'd set up. So right, I made a promise here. This is going to, you know, do something in your day that's going to be relatable. So I've now got to kind of marry those two concepts. And it was really the idea of uh, context of providing a good reason for somebody to, want to listen to this particular piece of music given the expectation that you'd set up so um it became and i would i'd, I'd like really eclectic different tracks you know there'd be like kasabian tracks on there next to major laser and it was typically like you know where do you see those two partying together really um so yeah and that was the idea really that it it was up to you as a curator to define what made a music to save the world to track a music to save the world to track and um that is a skill that gets refined as you get a clearer sense of what you're trying to achieve but i think the the thing that we all kind of learned was that the what made an effective music to playlist versus an effective you know playlist was the ability to um create an experience for somebody um the ability to um really kind of curate the particular message that you're trying to tell somebody and it's different for everybody um you know you've got like music to fight evil which can have hip-hop next to bad religion and stuff but it's all about basically um you know songs were songs were a really strong political message um so yeah that was that was the um the, the kind of the development of how to become a, a good music to curator. Um, but even that's changed and evolved, especially recently, it's kind of miles away from, from that initial seed. But um, when you look back, it's always a really stepwise gradual process to get to where we are now. And it all feels really logical. It all makes sense. And we, we do look back at some of the stuff we were doing and going, why were we doing that? Why were we calling it that? What was this? We were making things so hard for ourselves, but understanding that everything we've ever done we've never just like just done stuff for the sake of it there's always been a reason there's always been a motivation and always even back in 2017 it's always been to basically um you know how can we how can we service our curators how can we you know make this a place that really 
is a place where they feel looked after and um you know feel like they have a place to safely express themselves and and that kind of thing it's always in service of our community even though it sometimes didn't seems a bit like removed from that in certain ways you know Speaking of which, one of the things that I've also really appreciated what Music 2 does is the submission process. And I want to talk about that a little bit because on the flip side, of course, is that not only on how to develop being a curator, but the other thing too, of course, is that once you get to a point where your playlist is out there, right, and people are, you know, artists are now want to be a part of that playlist, right? Because that's part of playlisting essentially is to try and get your music placed in these specific playlists. And one of the great things about Music 2 is it, it helps simplify that into a one submission process that can be submitted to multiple curators because I know it's been always a challenge, even for us, into finding the right playlists, going through the process of what, you know, what are they currently playing right now? Is this a good fit? How to contact them, which is not always easy on how to actually contact them. And are they accepting new music? And then you get, of course, into the whole, okay, the playlisters that are asking for money, and then that can, becomes a major issue, or then looking into different types of playlist services that are out there that have a network of curators, but then you have to pay to be a part of it. And, you know, trying to justify the expense and making sure that it's not you know, against, uh, you know, terms of service for some platforms that are out there. And there's so much that is gets very, very convoluted when it comes to playlisting. And what I like about music too is kind of helps simplify that. So can you talk a little bit more about um, not only that, but also love your thoughts on what artists uh, can do to be best prepared when you do are reaching out to a playlist curator? So we used to have a really overly complicated submission process ourselves um and i know because i was one of the guinea pigs for that <laughs> yeah, exactly well well that is it and i you know i do want to kind of just you know credit mike here for really helping us to look at this process and um you know a huge amount of the work that went into it was directly um a result of the conversations that me and mike were having about the track submission process so thank you for that <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> that was a lot of fun i like i like to say i like to be guinea pig things i like to break things along the way and just you know but that was the things i was excited for you guys and in being part of that process yeah absolutely and i mean it, it really was one of those things that um because i don't want to do a disservice to the way things were because it, like i said everything has always had a reason um we always we never did things just point and it always felt like a really kind of I guess the, the aim was like, you know, you submit directly to that cu curator and it's kind of like an intimate one-to-one -one sort of thing. And, but the problem with that was if you were shake a hoof at the top of the, you know, so we got music to shake a hoof, which is one of our playlists and he was like in the top left. So he was getting an overwhelming majority of the submissions just because it was the path of least resistance for most artists. And we found that I feel I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I feel like what was happening was cute. Artists were submitting and saying, I'll just submit it here. You know your platform better than me. So I, I'm sure it will reach the right ears eventually. Kind of because, you know, from some of the language that we got, it's like um, they'd submit a track to me as escape reality saying, um, please consider this for your hip hop playlists. So it was almost sort of like they kind of saw us as a centralized entity anyway. And you know, like we'll send it here, but it'll, it'll reach the right place. And obviously that wasn't happening. So yeah, me and Mike, we looked at it. Um, and then, you know, the, the rest of the music two team looked at it and we said, how can we 
how can we simplify this? How can we centralize this? Um, the thing with music too is um, the, the, the limitation has typically been the tech stack. Um, we're a small, scrappy startup. We prioritize human development. And that's not to say, you know, other startups to put the money in the tech. It's like everyone does things differently. But, you know, there's a sacrifice to everything. And us putting our focus on the humans means that we kind of tend to be limited in the tech that's available to us. So coming up with this solution was like, right, how are we going to create a centralized database of track submission, you know? Um, and I'm not going to go into the, the depths of how we did that, but suffice to say, we now have um, a, a, a central single form that you submit to, and that goes into our community platform where all of the curators who are active in our community can browse and, and, and look for it, um, find new music in there. Um, there's different fields on the form, but one of the things that we really look for is a, a considered submission. Um, we appreciate that if you're an artist, you're probably submitting to many different places and it can be a huge time commitment to kind of sit there and craft a beautiful piece for every single person. But, um, you know, likewise, the, the thing that when we're getting thousands of track submissions in a given month, um, it's just not feasibly humanly possible to look at them all. So you develop, and I talk about this, um, so, um, a friend of mine, uh, Ariel Hyatt, published a book uh, last year. Earlier, uh, yeah, it was last year. Um, and kind of one of the things that I put forward about that, because you know she was asking me about playlist curation, was this idea of heuristics, which is like little mental shortcuts. You see the psychology coming out. There's you know, the psychology. Yeah. Yep, there it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody does it. Everyone, you, you know, you as a as a record label executive, you develop mm -hmm. heuristics in terms of. Oh yeah. What are my psychological shortcuts? Curators do the exact same thing. So, you know, to answer the main question, what can somebody do in order to essentially short circuit a, a curator's bias? Um, you know, it, it's going to be like, you know, how can I use what they've put in front of me to stand out? And now some do stand out in different ways. I mean, we've had one person who literally just smashed the keyboard in all the all the fields and i was like okay well you stood out but probably not for the right reason <laughs> not for the right... you know <laughs> yeah um, it's probably not a good thing to do yeah because uh yeah um but if you if you kind of you know we're not expecting war and peace or some profound piece of poetry or something but something that and again i can only really speak from my own um, experiences with other curators and what they look for and, and me and myself, but looking for that human edge. Um, it's, it's very easy to ignore a press release when someone says, you know, I'll, you know you, we all know how a press release reads and it has its purpose, but um, at least as far as music two is concerned, um, what, what, what is really happening there is it should be a connection between two human beings or one human to potentially many human beings because as Mike, you know, like one of the, the beautiful things that can happen is if one curator is filtering through the track submissions and finds one they really like, we have a whole place where they will share it with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't take much for one curator to say, I love this so much that everyone else kind of, gets on that same feeling we've had um an 80 20 artist um who um 
Jane Asylum, one of our curators, saw something in that track. She was so inspired by it. She went and made a whole playlist around it. That was uh, really, really cool. What I told our artists that they got so excited about that fact. That that was really amazing that one of one of the curators thought to themselves they loved it so much that they created an entire you know playlist around it, which you know, you know, like you know, we're just happy if it gets placed into a, in a playlist that makes sense for the music, but to have a whole playlist surrounding it, that's that's truly amazing. And that that's that's because you know it speaks to the the um the creativity the 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 human element that um give give that curator who is a human being and i feel like again it comes back to that other serial thing but if you give them something to really work with um in that sense that they are able to springboard off it and create something amazing um you're really kind of doing yourself a favor because you're giving um you're giving over some inspiration. You're giving over a piece of humanity. Um, it sounds something like a Dark Souls thing, like, but, <laughs> you know, um, sorry, video game nerd speak. But, um, I, and again, this is, this is, again, this just really does apply to the way Music 2 does things and everyone's going to have their own different approach. But a press release really does trigger the heuristic of this is just PR speak. This is... This is self-fulfilling promotional stuff. Um, we as so we started doing listening parties quite recently, where we all just jump on a Discord call and listen to some of the track submissions together. And we've had some pretty like you know fundamentally uh, connective moments, really, where we've all just been moved by a piece of music we've been listening to. And it doesn't seem like a coincidence that typically those submissions were more heartfelt as well in the way that they um approached it they speak speak to us like human beings um i just think that's so important and i know it sounds really kind of like well how do i action this map how do i speak like a human i am a human um i guess it comes down to that emotional connection like you know humans love stories humans love to hear stuff if you can tell us some adversity that you overcame to create this track or what what what's what emotional human and moment spurred you to create it i feel like that's going to go a much longer way than um you know the kind of the typical pitch that we really get and it can be difficult to sit and come up with that and and almost kind of like a vulnerability and you might feel a bit stupid as you're writing it but if you could speak to that human thing that we all share, it's that's what we're about. We're about the connection. And I'll also point out too that you a press release has its reason for existing, but I think the challenge is that it shouldn't be the only thing that you're submitting. And that's I think the difference is that you can still be you can still have press release have all because the press release is like here's all the details like that's the way I look at press release. Here's all the details that you need that if you are interested now you can deep dive further and here's everything you know very nice and concise of everything that you could possibly want to know about me as an artist and about this particular release. But the initial outreach should be something like you said that that's human something that's personable something that you can connect with something that is going to make that particular release stand out and then being like okay 
And then, by the way, if you are interested, here's more information. And that's what their press release comes in is like, okay, you're now interested. Here's now all the, all the, you know, information about the additional information about the story behind the release. Here's about us. Here's the accomplishments I made. All these other things can be, that could be all in a press release or even on a website for that matter, but just, just a direction to go into. And that's the way I always approach it is trying to have that personable approach or something that is going to catch their attention, but then in the same at the same time, giving them the ability to deep dive very easily if they are interested. Yeah, I mean, and that'll, and that'll happen a lot of the time is when a curator really likes a track, they'll kind of say, how can I um, find out more about this particular artist? Or what can I do? Um, I think we had that with the turn zero situation where Jane was yep. like, I, I got some questions for Mike, you know, how can, how can I answer them? So you know, that's when the UPK comes in. Yeah, um, exactly. I guess it's more a case of don't just open with that. Don't Correct. hit someone around the head with it. Like <laughs> um, start start in a way that feels like you couldn't really copy and paste it, even if you have. But again, we appreciate time is a factor here. And the, the idea of crafting painstaking messages to every single person you're going to outreach, knowing that the vast majority are probably not going to reply, like no one's going to expect that of you. But if what you're kind of going to do from a, a template is at least, you know, think about your audience, write it for a human being. Like an EPK is not really written for a human connection. It's like you say, it's a transactional document. It's about information. It's about something that a journalist could use in order to um, get the facts straight when they're reporting on something. But it's almost, and I've just realized this, it's kind of presumptuous. It's kind it of is. saying, right, we know you're going to publish this, so here's the information. Thanks. Well, let us know when it's on the website. And I think that probably rubs a lot of people up the wrong way because they're like, whoa, you know, you're making a lot of assumptions here, buddy. You know, Right. It's like one of those things where it's I, what I at least try to do when I do those kind of uh, outreach and approaches is again, that personable touch, but not making any kind of assumptions, just saying who we are. And again, it's, it's, it's about those psychological shortcuts, really quickly saying who we are, what we're looking for, and then here's how you can get more information, right? Not necessarily assuming that it's going to be published. It's like, okay, if you are interested, you don't have to come back and tell me you're interested. It's like, here's, this is the all everything that you possibly need. If you're if you're interested, great. Here's everything that you need to do what you need to do. If you're not interested, totally cool too. Like no, no, no pressure either way. And then this way, I'm not wasting their time going back and forth with me and wasting my time essentially by going back and forth. It's like they got everything they need to do what they need to do. Just let me know if you're interested and you're going to do something because if we know, then obviously we, we want to know because so we can r- report it back to the artist. But also on top of that, too. We want to know so that we can help support you and to promoting the fact that the music is on a playlist or it is in an article or being spun on the radio, whatever the case is. So we want to know about it. So that's usually how to do it. And again, if you're doing it in a nice, concise way and respecting their time, you know, most of the time we'll we'll get a response back. It was funny. Speaking of which, uh, actually earlier today, I got a text, random text message from somebody who asked me like, hey, you know, hey, is this Mike from 8020 Records? And it was, you know, I usually don't get that. So somebody got my number and it was somebody who was submitting their artist. And what I appreciated was the fact that they found my number and they actually texted me, which I thought was kind of impressive. And so that was an interesting approach. 
And I was more than happy to have them send me an email. Now, unfortunately, they didn't do their due diligence. It was a type of genre that we normally don't represent. So that's like where it's like, okay, you didn't do your homework. But I really appreciate the fact that they first texted me about if I was in, be interested in the artist that they were representing and then asked them to email me. And they emailed me within minutes, like all the information that I possibly would need to talk about the artist. And I was honest and upfront. I said, we're not looking for anybody right now, but I was still oppressed by their approach is that they first were checking in and made it personable to myself and, and text messaged me. And then they followed up immediately with an email. So the only catch that they had was they didn't do their due diligence and realize that the artist would probably not be a good fit for who we represented. But I did appreciate the approach there. I mean, there's definitely something in that. And, um, you know, one of the other pieces of advice I would give is if you've got the time, start doing the outreach before you've got a release. Just put yourself on people's radar. If yep. If somebody is open to be contacted with regards to a particular track release, I mean, they're open to be contacted. I, I again, I, I think I mentioned this, this in Ariel's book and it's still not happened, which is that I've not had somebody just reach out to me just to say, hey, I'm here, uh, I, I'm a fan of what you do and just keep me in mind, you know? Um, that to me is, it's, all right, okay, you could say that it's self-serving and you can see that they're obviously doing that from a networking perspective, but like, that's good. Like, we want to see people networking. But it's also that idea of just kind of laying a little bit of a foundation with somebody. Like, I don't, I mean, again, it's like a lot of people put their interests out there and stuff and it's like, why not contact them? If they've, let's use Final Fantasy VII, if they've kind of expressed an interest in that game, reach out to them about that and say, hey, here, you know, I, I see that you like this. I personally have a game mm -hmm. that I personally really love. And there's there's a lot that you could probably do that would take very little time, but would pay dividends down the road. Absolutely. Um, if you go and start laying those foundations of just reaching out to people without anything to ask, without anything to pitch, not asking of them of anything or just saying, hey, I'm just introducing myself. Um, especially, I mean, let's face it, if if that's, that playlist, for example, is in the genre of the music that you make, you're probably a fan of their playlist. You'll probably like the artists that are on there. So tell them. Tell them yep. that you appreciate what they do. Everybody is a human being. People might say they don't, but people do like to be validated. And I mean, playlisting can be quite lonely sometimes. Sometimes you don't know if the X number of followers that's on your playlist are all really care whether you keep doing this or not, that not, very few people are probably contacting them and saying, love what you do. I mean, YouTubers kind of get that. They have yep. that feedback interface with their, with their community, but you know, it's kind of a unilateral thing on places like Spotify and stuff. So I would probably imagine if you was to reach out to somebody and just tell them that you really appreciate what they do and have no real ulterior motive other than to just appreciate their work, they would remember you. They might not reply to you, but they would definitely remember you. So I know we're running a little bit on time here, but I did want to talk a little bit about your music project itself, um, Viva Ellipsis. Can you talk a little bit more about that project? I would say in a nutshell, what Viva Ellipsis is, is an interdimensional welcome center. 
Um, it's designed to introduce people who are newcomers to the Meridian system. Um, it's pretty scary, you know, interdimensional travel and crossing the fold as, as it's referred to. So, um, you know, historically speaking, they found that there was a cataclysmic event and a lot of like wormholes kind of opened up and, you know, portals between different dimensions and people were kind of just stepping across and falling into space and it was a big health and safety consideration so they kind of put these space stations in place and Viva Ellipsis is one of them. Um, it's a whole hub of um, activity, they call them exposition portals, the idea is that it's like I need to cross over and they say right here's where you are and what to expect and they go oh okay it's a bit overwhelming but I get it. Um, but it's a living, breathing world. It's got um, politics and scenarios, religion, situations, geography and planets. But uh, music is a big factor as well. Um, the exposition portal itself is home to the Sound Lodge uh, run by Shaco. And there's currently four members on the roster. They're a bit inactive. Um, sometimes you go over to Spotify and like, can you guys do some work? Um, but yeah, that's the... Um, there's definitely a big musical aspect to it, but they've got their own stuff going on as well. Um, there's there's some strange kind of nefariousness that at least I'm observing, um, mainly coming from Rupert. Rupert's one of the members of the Sound Lodge, but I don't trust him. So yeah, and I I mean I I've checked out the portal too, and it's 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 absolutely incredible. It's it's extremely immersive, and you know especially if you are really into uh, sci-fi novels or anything along those lines. I mean, this is definitely right up your alley. So to wrap everything up here, for anybody who is looking to become a playlist curator or to improve their skills upon a playlist curator, um, do you have any uh, parting advice to those people? It very much depends on what you want out of curation. Um, I think that there is definitely different routes that you can go down, um, the financial route being one of them. Um, we have pivoted away from individualization, so to speak, because it used to be that the playlist that you built was the center of everything. We are now heavy on collaboration. We stumbled on it by accident. Obviously, collaborative playlists are a thing in Spotify. You send it to a pal and you both throw songs on it. We found such a power in that. Um, some of the connections that people have made through collaboration have been profound. So um, we both know Rich Parrot the Fourth from Global Money World. Um, he is a music two curator now as well. Um, he made a playlist with uh, Ben Young. Um, he's been around for quite a while um, about you know where to start with Outcast. And, and I was on a call with Rich a while ago and we were looking at it and I was like, you know, you're number two on Google for where to start with Outcast. And he was really overwhelmed by that. Um, you know, really kind of grateful for the opportunity that he and Ben got to share and build this thing together. Because he was like, you know, when I was 15, I'd come home from school and I'd be wanting to find out as much as I could about Outcast. I was, and now it's like, I'm the guy who, you know, that same kid searching for stuff on Outcast it's my writing that he's going to find. It's kind of like passing the baton. So that never would have happened if the two of them hadn't collaborated. Um, we're finding amazing things are happening when you just get two people or three people or five people, who knows, and saying, make a playlist together. That's how it starts. You know, just make a playlist together. And it's, it's, the, it's become such a, a, a central aspect of our culture now. That's how we onboard people. 
if you're a new curator coming to music too, the first thing you'll do is make a collaborative playlist with one of us. And it's how we get to know each other, you know. You share the songs with each other back and forth, and then you're talking about it, and you're going, oh, wow, I didn't know that, you know, these kinds of things, or you had that same experience as me, or this song was so meaningful to you as well. And it really builds a sense of getting to know each other. So, yeah, we have put that at the center of everything that we do. Um, it's a completely different way of curating, for sure, um, but it changes everything. It really does change everything. You stop thinking about clout. You start thinking about follower count. You start thinking about yourself, and you look at how can you, you end up in this situation where you're like, oh, I really want to, like, that song they added was so good. I want to, I want to, you know, kind of up the ante and you kind of end up in this sort of, I want to impress them. I want to show my musical knowledge. And it takes you in places that you never thought you would have go. Me and you, we're going to make a collaborative playlist together for sure. Um, it's I so much fun. I would love but, to do that. You know, just like the idea of, because we are a global community as well, um, that's really you know, if you want to get to the essence of what I think makes this so special is that cross-cultural connection. The idea that, you know, somebody from India can send me a, you know, a track and I send them one back and, you know, we're halfway across the world from each other and yet we're connecting on this exact same level. I mean, you want to get to the existential, like music is the universal language. It's our first language. It's the thing that we speak first. Maria on our team, Typically, you know, if she wants to communicate something to you, she'll send you a song. Um, that's kind of how we all move. And some of the amazing things that have happened, the, like the shared understanding, the getting to know each other better, like people from totally different walks of life, different backgrounds, different cultural beliefs, all sharing this one same passion. I mean, it really feels so good to be doing that. And to me, that is why... Um, that is why I love curating them. So I can't speak to other platforms and other ways that they do it. But, you know, if you want to come and be a music to curator, um, that's the way we do things. And there's so much to learn from that because it's always about seeing what the other person's doing and then connecting with them over that. And you, can, you can't predict that. And that's kind of been my whole life. You can't predict it. <laughs> that is 100% true. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for being on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I realized too, that this is essentially now your third time on it because also you've interviewed me and that came out last year as well. So thank you so much for again, for, for being part of the 8020 show. I always do appreciate it. And you know, as always, I always appreciate your friendship as well. Thank, honestly, dude, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate your friendship too. Um, I don't want to get too softy, but yeah, Mike, I, and for the listeners, you know, Mike is someone that I really respect and really value his friendship. So it's always great to talk. And yeah, thanks for having me on, dude. And thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.